As we continue our study here through the book of Exodus, we are traveling through the Ten Commandments. You were here last week. Uh, we celebrated our four-year anniversary. Zane Pratt, um, visiting preacher, came and preached. And there was a moment, there was a, a dark moment, I guess, in my heart where I thought, you know where we are in the Ten Commandments as he comes to preach? Do not commit adultery. I bet he would love to preach that uh, for our four-year anniversary service as a, as a guest preacher. Um, but the grace of God and wisdom uh, told me not to do that and let him preach whatever God had on his heart. And that's what he did. Um, as he preached a great message last week on the mission that we have as a church. Just outstanding. Just praying that God would continue to do more and more things from last weekend. But now we jump back into the Ten Commandments and we get to the Seventh Commandment, which is just that. Do not commit adultery. And so there's a couple of things I need to say at the very beginning. Um, one, just even in the nature of the text, is one of the reasons why, even as we're walking through expositionally, you kind of are aware of what's coming up. And we send an email out every week you know, saying, here's our text coming up. Typically, you know, it's a longer kind of chunk of text as we move through portions of the Bible. Um, our, Bethany, again, our church administrator, has loved that recently the, this text had been like three words, do not murder. That was the, the passage um, two weeks ago. But we've known coming up this commandment, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. But maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you came in, maybe it was your first time, maybe you've got, you know, there's younger ears here. I want to both be sensitive to that, but also the reality that there may be uh, some more mature things talked about in this sermon as we deal with this commandment. Um, and so just as a heads up, uh, as we uh, begin, for you to be able to walk through and navigate conversations on the other side of this as, as you see fit. The other thing as we begin is, I just need to say, as we jump into this, one of the things I was kind of unprepared for in preaching through the Ten Commandments is how big each commandment is. Uh, each one of these commands is like the tip of the iceberg. And as you dive into it and see the way the Bible teaches these commandments, there's so much underneath the surface in their application. And so they are huge in regards to ethics, how we are to live as human beings, in regards to worldview, how do we engage and think about the world that we're in, God as creator, him setting them these rules to his creation, and, and specifically to us personally, how we then engage and interact with each of these. And so each one of them are huge in scope. And this one in particular is not only huge, but is just so sensitive. Because there's so many that have been impacted by adultery. Uh, whether you have committed adultery, whether you've been the victim of adultery, whether you've been around it, whether your family, maybe your children, friends, We've all been impacted by this specifically. And then, the, again, the outreaches of this uh, command as they deal with marriage or the purpose of marriage, upholding and honoring marriage. It talks about then uh, also sexual immorality and sexual sin. Again, there's so much to cover and it's so sensitive as we deal with each of this in different ways. I just want to ask as we go through this, we can't dive deeply into all of it because I've got 43 minutes to get through this. And so there's going to be some where we're going to have to generalize some of this. And so let me just ask, if just, as I've been preparing this week, this, this week in particular, I felt the weight of the reality of people walking in with brokenness in this world and the way in which that will impact. So let me just ask at the very beginning, just for grace, as we begin this, uh, jumping through, I can't say everything to everyone in this conversation. In order to get through and, and I think rightly teach this, we've got to take a little bit of a 10,000 foot view. But let me just say, if there's part of this in the sermon that you either um, uh, hear and it, it either convicts you or you go, I'm not quite sure what he means by that. 
um, there's maybe confusion or more questions, just email me. The, my card is at the connect table, cbrazier at lifeofthegrove.org. Email me and ask whatever question that might be. And I'd love to be able to get together, talk through it, because again, I realize the sensitivity of this conversation. Well, that being said, we need to dive in, because again, it's a large conversation and we've got to get going. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, do not commit adultery. We have seen that through these commandments, part of the way the Bible understands the Ten Commandments, it is not simply a negative prohibition. Within each commandment is not only the negative prohibition, all the do nots that are there, or thou shalt not if you're a kjv -er, thou shalt not, uh, all of them are negative commands except for uh, honor your father and mother, the fifth command. But they're not simply negative. There's also attached to that negative prohibition a positive promotion in every single commandment. That's why when Jesus was asked to summarize the law, how did he sum it up? He didn't say, don't do things that defile God's name and don't do things that hurt others. How did he sum up the law? It was a positive summary. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a positive summary of the law. And we see all throughout that that's what is understood in these commandments. And so as we look specifically here at do not commit adultery, there's a negative prohibition. Yes, we see that. But there's the positive promotion and the implication that is attached to it, which is honoring and cherishing marriage. And so as we go through, that's kind of how I want to walk through then the day, kind of three points for the outline, is asking and looking at what the seventh commandment promotes. So we'll look at first. Second, we'll look at what the seventh commandment prohibits. And then third, we'll look at where the seventh commandment leaves us. So what the seventh commandment promotes, the seventh commandment prohibits, and what the seventh commandment leaves us. I did not, where the seventh commandment leaves us. I did not expect how much of a tongue twister that would be, saying all that together. Um, lots of ths in there, uh, but here we go. Uh, so what the seventh commandment promotes. Again, this is a promotion of marriage attached to it. Do not commit adultery. Promotion is to honor and cherish marriage. It's covenant and relationship of marriage. And so in order to jump into this conversation, we need to, we need to not just assume but ask the question, what is marriage in God's eyes? Because I think we can come to it and kind of just assume stuff. Uh, we might go, well, marriage is whenever two people Walking by in a supermarket, make eyes with one another, they drop a can of corn, they both reach for it, their hands touch, all of a sudden there begins to be a harp in the background, pixie dust begins to float around, and love struck in the moment, deeply filled with romance, and this is the next, um, uh, what, a Nicholas Sparks novel that is being written, this is love, and it's leading to marriage, they're, they're choosing then to marry, marry one another because of how deeply they love one another, and this romance that has overtaken them. And that's kind of a popular sense of what marriage is. Just two people romantically inclined that say, oh, we want to hang out a lot. And we'll, have, we'll sign some papers in order to do it. But is that the way the Bible teaches what marriage is? Is it just a relationship that's convenient, that's based on our feelings? So then when those feelings fade, well, then we'll walk away from it. Well, if it's based on our feelings, then that would be true. What the Bible teaches is far different than that. Marriage is much greater than that. It's a far greater commitment. So even, as, again, as Jonah and Bethany get ready for their wedding on Friday, what are they agreeing to on that day? What are they walking into on that day? 
What are they saying yes to? When looking at the Bible and the way that it promotes marriage, um, Kevin DeYoung's a Presbyterian pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he gave five words, kind of lay the foundation of marriage. I think this is really helpful. The five words that lay the foundation of biblical marriage are one, complementarity. Complementarity. We'll kind of go back through each of these briefly. Complementarity. Second, covenant. Covenant. So complementarity and covenant. Third, children. Fourth, Christ. And fifth, church. Five words that kind of lay a foundation of how God understands marriage. Complementarity, covenant, children, Christ, church. Because we need to understand marriage is not something that man created. Man didn't go, hey, let's, I like you, you like me, let's start this thing called marriage. And marriage is not something that the state started. The, the government did not get together and the state did not officialize these relationships for whatever reason. Marriage is something that God designed. It was his idea. You see, in eternity, God saw the way in which he would redeem a people that had rebelled against him through his son, Jesus Christ. And seeing that relationship of love and covenant between Christ and the church, God said, I'm going to design this human relationship that will be a reflection of that relationship. And he designed marriage and officiated the very first wedding. That's how it began in Genesis. God designs and creates this relationship. And so that's what we see, this nature of complementarity there all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis uh, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, God is looking at his creation. All the animals are created. Adam is created. But then he goes, oh, it's not good that man should be alone. Everything else is good so far, but it's not good for man to be alone. So here's the conclusion. I will make a helper corresponding to him. I will make a helper suitable for him. That's God's conclusion. And so what does God do? Let's look at what he doesn't do. He doesn't create another animal. Right? Adam had, been, had all the animals coming through. He was naming them. And through it, the process was not just the naming of animals, also looking for a partner for Adam. He sees all these animals hanging out together in pairs. He's like, I don't have a pair. This animal wouldn't be good. This one wouldn't be good. And so as he comes through, there's nothing that would be a good helper. And God doesn't create, though, a different animal for Adam to partner with. Notice also, if Adam just needed help around the Garden of Eden, cultivating stuff, God could have given him a friend. He could have given him another man to help him. But God knew that Adam needed something different. He needed a helper corresponding to him, suitable to him, a helper that would complement him. There's that first word, complementarity. And so what does God do? God creates woman. He caused a deep sleep to cover the man. He, Adam slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. So think about that scene. Adam is the only human on the face of the planet. He has seen all of these animals come by. He falls asleep, takes an outstanding nap, and then he wakes up. And what does he see walking around the tree? What does Adam say? This one's different. This, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The first recorded words in human history is a love poem written from a husband to his wife. 
This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This, then, is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and the wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. Such a beautiful picture of intimacy there. Completely exposed and felt no shame. And they were complimenting one another. God designed it that way. Not competing against one another, complimenting against one another, uh, with one another. Not totally flattened and equal as if God created another kind of man just with, looked a little bit differently. No, they were different and God designed them that way. He designed them as a helper suitable for him. You think about a puzzle. My four-year-old loves puzzles right now. And you think about two puzzle pieces. They have parts that fit together. They complement one another and form a larger picture. And this is what God does in this design for marriage. As he creates this woman that's different from Adam in design and in role, but is also stamped by the image of God and co-equal in worth, dignity, and value. A helper corresponding to him. A partner that fits together with him. A complementary pair. This is the first thing we see in understanding marriage. The second thing we see is this word covenant and children. These two words we see in the text in a later uh, chapter in Malachi, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. So one of the minor prophets, uh, God was exercising judgment on the nation of Israel. And as he was doing this, he's describing one of the reasons why he was no longer accepting their sacrifices and why they were being judged. And here's what God says in Malachi 2, 13 through 15. He says, this is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. So as people are bringing things to God, but God isn't accepting them. So here's the question, why? Here's his answer. You ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. There's that word. By covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What then is the one seeking? What is God seeking? And here's the answer. Godly offspring. And so again, we see here two other facets of understanding what marriage is. Covenant and children. Or covenant and kids, if you like the cuss sounds. Covenant and children. We see the complementary nature, but also there's a covenant relationship that's taken in here. There is, a, there is this oath, this vow, this agreement that says, till death do us part. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. It's a never going anywhere kind of love that says, even when my feelings may fade, I will still be here. Regardless of what situation we walk through, I will still be here. That I am here is a covenant, is a promise. And within the safety of that covenant, then we see it's God's design to be able to then faithfully raise up and rear children. That's the, the way in the, the kind of the system and environment in which God has seen fit to raise children. That's the way in which children are raised healthily in this context. When a husband and wife that love one another, as God has designed, raising then children in that environment. That's why you see the, the, the pain that's caused as children are ripped outside of that. And of course, there's situations of adoption and foster care in which people step in and are able then to continue to love and care for children that are not in that scenario. But friends, again, design the way that God has made it is for children to be raised by their biological fathers and husbands when it's possible. God is seeking that uh, covenant and that offspring, those children. This is part of the design of marriage. That doesn't mean that if you can't have children, 
that it somehow lessens marriage in any way. It's not the purpose of marriage. But to say that's going too far, but to say that it has no bearing on it, that God doesn't care about that, again, is to miss even all the way back at Genesis 1, the command, to, the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. As God has designed marriage in, in a way, a God-honoring desire to have children. Those are the next two words. So complementarity, covenant, children, and then the next two are Christ and church. We talked a little bit about this, but we see it in Ephesians 5 in the New Testament. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. And here's what Paul says. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Now, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You hear Paul quoting Genesis 2. But here's what's interesting. Paul says, this mystery is profound and I'm talking about Christ and the church. So here Paul describing the way in which husbands and wives relate to one another is a picture of the way that Christ and the church relates to one another. Is this living kind of play acted out in the world that husbands are to love your wives in the same way as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A kind of sacrificial leadership. Wives then are to honor and respect and submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. Again, there, you can do a whole sermon on what that means and what it doesn't mean. We don't have time today to jump into that. There are ways in which this text has been abused in the past. There's ways in which this text has been abused in the church. Um, within the context of a relationship, for, for wives to experience abuse, people have quoted this verse. For that is not what the verse is talking about. That's not what biblical submission looks like. But is a, is a glad submission then to the one in which they've chosen as the, as the church submits to Christ. And I want you to notice that if there's just a flattened equality between men and women in the relationship and the marriage, this analogy falls apart. That there's a difference in role and in, 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 um, in role within the context of a marriage. If it's totally flattened, then Paul's whole argument falls apart as he says, okay, look, husbands are to love their wives as Christ does the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ. There is not just a flattened equality between Christ and the church. And Paul is getting into then the understanding and the foundation all the way back from Genesis 1 that this goes back to the way in which God designed it from the beginning. The mystery is profound. And what's the mystery? Talking about Christ and the church. That they were images and symbols of what a marriage is to reflect rightly. And so if you read that and your conclusion is, oh, well, the husband gets to make decisions. Well, goodness gracious, you have not read the text. Or you don't know anything about the life of Jesus. Because how did Jesus love and lead his bride? He died for her. But friends, that's the command for husbands. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's not about making a decision. It's about laying your life down for your wife and for your family. And being such a role model, such a, a, a leader and a role model within your church. All of the Puritans uh, used to kind of look at every home almost like a mini church and every husband is the pastor of that church. Do you love your household in a way in which Christ loves his people? Friends, that's the command. 
And it's the image then on foundation understanding what marriage is. It's the positive promotion from this commandment. To see these five words, complementarity, covenant, children, Christ, and church. As these two people leave and cleave, again as the King James says, or leave and join together in a one flesh union. In this relationship which two become one. Again, that's a, it's a, uh, that is talking specifically about the act of sex within marriage. Again, something that God designed. Something God designed both to initiate and strengthen marriage. is the beginning act of the marriage on the honeymoon night and also the strengthening of that marriage then through sexual intimacy. Sex is like super glue that joins two people together. And it's why it should be practiced as God has designed it within the context of that covenant relationship that says, I'm not going anywhere. I've been joined together with you now. Because when that happens and those two people are ripped apart, just like super, I don't know if you've ever put super glue on your hands and put it together and tried to rip your hands apart, it's going to hurt. It will be painful. And it's the same as we look at sex in the way that God has designed it. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York. Uh, he calls it covenantal cement. The way in which it, it cements and brings together this covenantal relationship. Uh, this is the way that God has designed what marriage is and for uh, this sexual act within the context and confines of a covenant relationship of marriage. This is what the seventh commandment promotes. Honoring and cherishing marriage as God has designed it. This covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. But there is something that breaks that covenant. There is something that, that interjects and fractures that covenant, sometimes beyond repair. And do you know what that is? Well, it's exactly what the seventh commandment prohibits, adultery and sexual immorality. So second now, we look at what the, second, the seventh commandment prohibits. Do not commit adultery. It's fairly straightforward on its face. Do not commit adultery. Adultery just simply being marital infidelity. So we would understand it to be on its own. This is what it is communicating, prohibiting that. But as we've seen with the commandments, again, it's not simply just the one act that is prohibiting, but it is prohibiting everything that leads up to that act. So we saw last two weeks ago with murder. God isn't just saying don't kill people in cold blood. He's saying don't be angry in your hearts, what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Everything that leads to murder as well is prohibited by the sixth commandment. commandment. For instance, the same here. It's not simply this one act that God is prohibiting. It's everything that leads to it. Prohibiting marital infidelity and everything to it. Well, how do I say that? I want to look at a couple places in the New Testament. First, I want to look at 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip there. You can just write it down, look at it later if you'd like, or you can just listen. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. Paul's writing to Timothy, a young pastor in a church in Ephesus. And here's what he writes to him, talking about the law. Listen to this. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent. You hear what Paul's saying? Paul's saying the law wasn't given to people that didn't need it. They didn't have any sin. There was no Ten Commandments in the Garden of Eden. There will be no Ten Commandments in heaven. Uh, because it's not given to people who don't sin. It's given to those who sin. It's not given to the righteous person, but to the lawless and rebellious. 
He continues then, and as he goes through a list of commands and who it was given towards, he's going to unpack who this law was given to. I want you to listen and see if you hear anything that sounds familiar. Paul says the law was given for the unholy and irreverent, and then he begins the list. Here's the list. For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, for liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. Did you hear, as Paul began to list out who the law was given to, he just ran through the second table of the law. The first table of the law, commands one through four, dealing with our vertical relationship to God. The second table, commands five through ten, dealing with our horizontal relationships with one another. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And what are the commandments, especially five through nine? The tenth one is coveting, deals internally. But as Paul's going through this, he's dealing with all the external sins in the Ten Commandments. And he goes through commandments five through nine. Commandment five, honor your father and mother. What's he say? For those who kill their fathers and mothers. Commandment six, don't commit murder. It's for murderers. So then you think, oh, we're going to get commandment seven. It's going to be given for the adulterers. But who does Paul say? He said it's given for the sexually immoral and for males who have sex with males. They're lumped together. So not not just adultery, but Paul is now broadening this to sexual immorality and to homosexuality. So Paul isn't simply talking about now a single act. He's broadened it. And this word here, sexually immoral, is the word porneus. It's related to another word used consistently in the New Testament, porneia, sexual immorality, which is kind of a catch-all for any kind of illicit sexual act. You can hear even as the same root that we get our word for pornography. It's a catch-all that is for anything. It's used not just in the New Testament. That word porneia was used in first century Greek, common in literature. And as it was used, it was often it was referred to, uh, used to refer to adultery, to any sexual acts outside of marriage, to prostitution, and to homosexuality, even outside the Bible. It's the way in which this is used. So Paul is already now expanding this to say it's not just a single act. This is sexual immorality. Even if you're married or unmarried, single, widowed, divorced, that anyone who is practicing sexual immorality is now disobeying this seventh commandment. He continues on, for slave traders, for those who steal men, do not steal. For liars and perjurers, do not bear false witness. Again, Paul just goes through the second table of the law, and as he then applies the seventh commandment to Timothy in the church in Ephesus, he says the application is for all those who are sexually immoral. And for all those who practice homosexuality, Paul has expanded this to rightly apply, again, what's underneath the surface of the commandment. It's categorical. Everything that leads to adultery. And so we see this command not only prohibits marital infidelity, but everything that causes infidelity. It's a broad term, this word, porneia, that's used to describe any sexual act that was prohibited by the law of Moses. Now, I want to take... Just a second, because maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And you're sitting there and you're just like, well, this is, just, this is what I expected when I come to church. All the things I'm not supposed to do. I just watched Footloose last night and this is just classic. This is, fits right in, right in line with it. And I can understand that. Listen, I understand where you're coming from. So many churches only focus on what you're not supposed to do. They love laying out guilt and telling you how, fall short, how far you fall short of the standard they set, which somehow, ironically, never seems to be the sins that they struggle with. Always the sins other people struggle with, the things they're talked about a lot. 
And so I understand maybe you're coming in with a little bit of an eyebrow raised. But I want to take just a moment and ask you a question. But what, because what I think God is doing here in the seventh commandment is he, as a creator of the world, here's, here's my understanding, kind of my worldview, which is get it on the table, is that my understanding is that God created the world and then he set the rules for how to live in it. He gets the, he gets the freedom to do that because he created it. The most controversial sentence, I think, in the Bible is the very first one. God created the heavens and the earth. If that's true, then, then he tells us how we live in that world that he created. He has the right to as a creator. That's, that's the most controversial sentence. That's what we need to wrestle, wrestle with. So my understanding is God not just creating the world, but saying, here's how to live in it. If you live in a covenant relationship with a husband and a wife, and sex is practiced within that relationship, it leads to human flourishing and to families and children's flourishing. And if... You break this commandment, whether through adultery or any kind of sexual immorality, it leads to destruction and death. Not just eternally, as we have to stand before God and give an account for our sin and rebellion against him, but even experientially today. That's the Christian worldview, that we can't just say God gives us rules that are terrible, but we've got to grin and bear it and try to get to heaven. No, God designed the world and each of his commandments are good that when we live according to them, it leads to human flourishing and to life. This isn't just God going, I'm going to twiddle my thumbs and make life really hard for them and see if they can make it. God in his grace and in his kindness has given us these commands to help us see how we are to live as his creation in his created world. And so if you're here, you're not a Christian. This is not simply just here are things you're not supposed to do because we want to be mean. I know it can sound like that. I want you to hear me, and I want you to also take an honest look around the world today, especially in our country, and I want you to ask yourself, does true sexual freedom with no boundaries really lead to the life that it's promising? Or does it, in fact, leave this kind of emptiness? Does it leave destruction in its wake? Does it give rise to things like the Me Too movement? Friends, my... my, my contention is that, again, God's good design is he's actually given us boundaries that we can live in to be able to experience life and flourishing as his creation. Is what I understand the commandments to be. They're boundaries to help us then live in the way that God has designed it. I think I've said this in here before. I may, it may just be in some of our classes. But in our backyard, we live right next to a retention pond. And we're like on like the fourth story of the retention pond, it feels like. I don't know how we got on this. It feels like the side of Mount Everest down to the bottom of the retention pond next to our house. Uh, but when we moved there, it was outstanding, right? Uh, here we are, young married couple, no kids. We just moved in. We've got empty cardboard boxes. What do we do? We get the cardboard boxes and we slide down this huge retention pond. <laughs> Top out at like 73 miles an hour. It was excellent. Lots of fun. Then we have a child, and don't really think much about it, because, right, they just sit around a car carrier, they don't really do anything, but then they begin to do this thing called walking. And then all of a sudden, as a parent, you open the back door, and this toddler that has no understanding of danger begins to look at the side of Mount Everest and go, this looks like a fun thing to go down. And there is now this concern and anxiety as a parent that you feel like you can never let your child out because death is at every corner, it feels like. So a couple years into our marriage, my father-in-law, again, uh, who can build anything he wants, uh, decided to help us build a fence. So we built a fence around our backyard that goes right up to the edge of the side of that retention pond, but doesn't go into it. 
And our concern, Leah and I, my wife and I's concern was that if we put a fence up, we would lose some of our backyard. It'd get smaller. And we already felt like, oh, it's not a ton of space. We put a fence up, it's gonna get even smaller. But we built the fence and we walked out and to our surprise, we went, oh, it feels bigger. And the reason why it felt bigger is that now we felt like our children could go right to the edge of the boundary, but they would stay there and they weren't in any danger of falling off. Where before we even made them stay like right around the door, they now had the freedom to go within this boundary. It actually made the freedom even more. And friends, that's what we find to be true. That's what I understand these commandments to be. God drawing a fence around saying, here's where it's safe. Live here, flourish, experience life. I promise you, you find two people who've lived a lifetime together, who've loved one another as Christ loved the church, experience a sexual relationship only in the confines of that covenant and talk to them when they're 75 and ask them what their life has been like and it has been filled with joy and life. And my contention is if you find somebody that has done whatever they've wanted to do and sought pleasure their whole life, they get to 75, they are alone and they've had as much experience as they could imagine. My contention is they will be left empty and wanting something more. And so again, if you're just here and you're not a Christian, I hope that you hear that's the heart in these commands as God gives them. He's given them in his grace to show you how he's designed the world, to be able to live here in it. Consent seems to be the virtue of the day in regards to this in our culture and society. It's the ultimate virtue in sexual ethics. And in a way, I agree with that. But I believe that consent isn't given on a date or in the heat of the moment, or in DMs on social media, that consent is given when you look into the eyes of the one that you've chosen, and you say, I do. That's whenever that moment of consent happens. And we see that freedom and that safety given here. And so if you're here and wrestling with some of this, you know, again, you're not a Christian, let me just ask you and kind of prod you a little bit to not get hung up on whether or not you can have sex outside of marriage. Ask yourself questions like this. Did God really create everything? Is Jesus, in fact, God, and did he rise from the dead? If so, we should listen to him, whether we like the commands or not. He has the right to be able to say it. And then third, ask if you can trust in this word, in this book, this Bible. Wrestle with those questions. The rest flows from it. Go to Jesus and encounter him. Ask if he really is who he says he is. And then come to his commands and see how they go from there. Moving on then, we've got to keep going. Again, the commandment prohibits, again, all sorts of sexual immorality, homosexuality. But Jesus, again, presses even further than that and rightly teaches in Matthew 5, 27, as um, Garrett Carter read earlier in the service. And it's worth reading again because it's, just, it's the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said this, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. He's quoting Exodus twenty fourteen. He said, but I tell you, Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is saying we have to take a deadly kind of serious with this sin going to whatever extremes we might need to in order to keep ourselves then from going down this path. But he continues verses 31 and 32. And Garrett didn't read this part. I wanted to read it here together with us. In these next few verses, Jesus then says, 
It was also written, again, quoting the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, there's that word again, porneia, except in that case causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So again, listen, this is a whole sermon right here and how to think about a biblical view of both marriage and divorce. And again, I know there are people here who have walked through divorce, who have been remarried, who may be walking through the process of divorce right now. And you see the way in which there's a seriousness in which God views marriage. But I hope you see as well the way in which Jesus talks about that that covenant can be broken through adultery, through sexual immorality. There is this biblical grounds then for this covenant that's broken. But apart from that ground of sexual immorality, and later in 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul also includes abandonment of an unbeliever, which we also see as going to be categories of abuse, physical or emotional abuse as well. But apart from these grounds for divorce, there are no biblical grounds for those, that covenant to be broken. God is saying that this is a covenant relationship. And when you join together as one flesh, there are things that break that covenant and have grounds to walk away. But apart from those grounds, then you continue to stick through, whether high or low, rich or poor, for sickness and in health. As God's saying that there is a uh, connectedness here. And then if not, the state isn't the one who's defining what marriage is or is not. This is God's view. And so even if a state says, okay, you're now divorced, God is saying, if you do not have biblical grounds for that divorce and get remarried, you have now actually committed adultery. And so again, there is a whole sermon here. And we can't continue going uh, into it because we've got uh, to keep moving. But if there are questions that you have, then please reach out and would love to be able to talk more about it. But the last thing I've got to say before moving on is there is a way that I have seen and have talked to spouses that have been the victims of adultery that then see our abandonment or abuse. They see the grounds that God has given them to walk away from this covenant because their spouse broke that covenant. And in doing so, in walking through this permission that Jesus has given, that the church or others around them make them feel guilty for walking through the door that Jesus had opened. That it feels like now there's a scarlet D on their chest when they walk in. And maybe that's you. And let me just tell you, again, the church has been so, so and Christians uh, have been so terrible at this and laying guilt on people that Jesus had laid no guilt on. There is freedom here in this because you're not the one who broke the covenant. This is not your guilt to bear. There's a phrase I've heard that's been weaponized, I feel like, with uh, women in particular as I've talked through walking through this situation, but also men, that their husband has had an affair. They then are pursuing divorce as they see the grounds that Jesus has given. And friends, I think well-meaning will come and say, hey, don't you know that God hates divorce? And that's true. God hates divorce. Again, I hope as we painted marriage, we see God loves marriage and hates divorce. But using it in that context feels like a rebuke to that person. And maybe you've heard that. And friends, let me just tell you what God also hates. He hates adultery. That's why it's a command here. Don't commit adultery. Because it's so serious because it fractures and breaks that covenant. That there are no ground, There are no grounds in which that trust may be irreparably damaged to be able to walk away. And perhaps not. I know there are couples here that have walked through infidelity and have decided to stay together. And friends, God has worked incredible stories of reconciliation. 
I've seen it happen. God can do anything, but we just need to make sure that we are not laying guilt in a place that Jesus doesn't. And if you've walked through that, know, I hope you hear the words of Jesus and not the words of ignorant Christians. That there is grounds within that. And so here, Jesus, now moving kind of beyond that, seeing there with divorce, I want to move back up then to 27 through 30 that Garrett read earlier. And you hear what Jesus is saying. This isn't now just an act that we've been talking about this whole time. Jesus goes into our hearts. Jesus says, you know what a violation of the seventh commandment looks like? I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Men, women, looking or longing with lustful intent is a violation of this seventh commandment. It's where the seeds of adultery are planted. It's the very heart of it. This looking lustfully, we need to make sure we define it. Because we are in a culture that's invaded by sexual images. We live in broken bodies that are invaded by sexual thoughts. I don't mean an invasion of an image or a thought that you then try to fight by the help of the Spirit to either look away or to fight in your mind. That's not looking lustfully. Looking lustfully is whenever a look becomes a gaze, whenever a thought becomes a fantasy. It's the lingering on that. This isn't describing, again, some sort of invasion, invasive image in public or on TV where you find yourself fighting for, for purity. God honors that fight, friend. This is something different. This is describing the second look of that person walking by. It's about your ability to get past the filters and firewalls that you have on your computer. It's about how skilled you become at being able to delete your browsing history. It's about the stories you play out in your mind as you read a book or watch a TV show. It's about the comparison in your heart between your spouse and that certain coworker that just gets you and has become your primary emotional support. Coveting and longing for another's friendship and connection over and against your spouse. It's about any inclination in your heart that's given a place to stay for a while as you ponder what it could lead to. And the seventh commandment here in Exodus 20, 14 prohibits it all. Adultery and every single thing act, word, and deed that leads to it. That's the prohibition. It goes to our hearts. So I want to close then asking where the seventh commandment leaves us. Because again, we may come and read the commandment, don't commit adultery, and most of you may go, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, yeah, I'm fine. Great. But we get to the end of this and we see the way the Bible applies this and we realize, again, this is every single one of us. We've all violated this command. And the seventh commandment leaves us with the realization that each of us have violated this commandment and fallen short of God's standard for our lives and for his glory. And there is, in regards to sexual sin and temptation, a particular kind of shame that's usually attached to it, right, if we're honest. That as we wrestle with this, there's usually shame that it just rushes over us. And so I know that there are people here today maybe wrestling with that. People who have committed the act of adultery. People who have had a divorce in the past that wasn't based on biblical grounds. People who have gone too far and crossed the line in relationships outside of marriage. People who are attracted to the same sex. People who have looked at images on your computer or devices perhaps as recently as last night. Every single person here, friends, is sexually broken. That's what we need to understand, all of us. 
And we've all violated this commandment. And you probably feel the weight and shame and guilt and condemnation that's often so close by. The enemy loves to take this and touch on this nerve and make us feel like we're dirty and unlovable, that the weight of our past mistakes is too much for God to forgive. So you either don't need to come to him or you need to hide that stuff because God doesn't want to deal with it. You know how gross that is? God doesn't want to see that. We feel shame and condemnation associated with it. I want to tell you something that will sound a lot more depressing, but it's actually the best news in your life. And here it is in Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13. That the word of God is living and effective. Right? If, you've been, if you've grown up in church, you've heard this verse. The word of God is living and effective, sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. We hear it read as the power of God's word. It's a book that is alive. It's active. It, it uh, it's, uh, penetrates as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It, this book, his word is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And we usually stop in verse 12. You've been in the church. You don't like to read 13. Because here's what 13 does. Verse 12 gives us the power of God's word. Verse 13 shows us the effect of God's word. And here's what it leaves us with. That no creature is hidden from him. But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. His word rips away all of our masks. Everything, all the fig leaves like Adam and Eve that we use to try to cover our shame, we stand totally exposed before a holy God to whom we must give an account. So here's, we got to press this in. Here's what that means. Every lustful thought that has fluttered through your mind your entire life is seen and known by God. A holy God. I remember growing up in middle school and high school and youth group and they would always say, you know, imagine, would you want all of your thoughts in your life to be, all the images in your mind to be played up on a screen for everybody to see? And as a high schooler, you're just like, no, I don't, I don't want that. So it talks about then the way in which we need to live, integrity, blah, blah, whatever it is. But here's the reality. The reality is that, friends, that movie is seen by God. Every single act, every single thought, we stand exposed before him. So all that shame that we feel stirring inside of us as we think about uh, the sexual brokenness in us, the acts and things that we have done in our past, it is all seen by God and we all stand naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account and we then feel that shame. It's like the opposite of Genesis 2. We are naked and covered in shame. And so you, you hear that and you're like, oh yeah, Caleb, that's terrible news. Why are you talking about this? Here's why it's the best news that you could ever imagine. Right? Because you may hear that and go, okay, so not only do I feel shame because of what I've done, now you have guaranteed and clarified that I'm exposed in shame before a holy God deserving of judgment. Awful news, never coming back. But I want you to think about this. If you ever bought a house, what's one of the things you have to, that you should do before you buy the house? Need get in, there's a number of things. One of the things is you need to get an inspection. Uh, you pay for somebody who's a professional to walk through the house that you're about to buy and look and see where the imperfections are that you can't really see. You pay for the inspection. He goes through, gives you the inspection report. You work it out with the owner before he sells it to figure out what are they going to fix, what are you going to fix, and then you buy the house knowing what you have. But then you buy the house. Then you move in. And then one day, you notice that there's a small hole in the wall. You go and look a little bit closer and you see 
that the whole thing is hollow. As you peel back some of the paint, you see that actually there's a whole infestation of termites in the house that you just purchased. And there is an immediate sense of buyer's regret. I didn't see it. If I would have seen it, I wouldn't have bought it. Because this is awful. And then a whole host of other things begin popping up. You're like, it didn't show up in the report. I'm getting on Claremont raves and reviews and nobody hired this inspector. He didn't find the termites. It's awful. And you're overwhelmed by buyer's remorse. And you may fear that God is the same way. That he has loved you, he has saved you, he has purchased you. But a couple years in the relationship, all of a sudden, he sees some of this brokenness and shame. And he's like, oh, I didn't know about this. I didn't realize that this is what I was dealing with. And maybe there's a party that feels like you need to hide things from God because you're worried that he didn't see it. He wasn't aware of it when he entered into the agreement. But friends, here's why it's the best news that you can imagine. Because when God offers you forgiveness, he knows exactly what he's forgiving. All of it. He loves you just as you are when you come to him. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he has bought you with a price. And friends, he has never experienced buyer's remorse. He knows all of it. You fall exposed before him, overwhelmed with shame. And that is the you that he loves. He knows it. He doesn't love a future version of yourself that has it all together that he's not embarrassed by it anymore. He loves you today. The seventh commandment violating, shame-bearing, guilt-ridden you today. And he wants you to know that when you turn and trust Jesus, when you declare that he's the Savior of your sin and the Lord of your life, and you say, Jesus, I'm giving it all to you. I really think that you're the king, that you are better than anything else. And so I give it all, my life, my career, my family, my sexuality, all of it. And I will let you identify me and not any of these other things. And I'm going to follow you. That when that happens, God wants you to know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's finished. It's done. All of it. You have been exposed before him and he offers you forgiveness full and free. And you may hear that and you go, that's just, that's too good to be true. Friends, that's the gospel. That's why it's good news. And if you don't believe it, again, just go back and read John 8, verses 2 through 11. Again, it's a living picture of this reality. The woman who was caught in adultery, caught in violation of this act. Again, we talked about it two weeks ago, but what happened in that moment? People caught her in the act of adultery. Again, which means they, they were in that act. So they pull her out. She has no clothes on. They bring her out in the middle of the street, plop her down before Jesus and go, Jesus, what are you going to do now? The great teacher of the law, you know what the law says about those who break this commandment. What are you going to do? Isn't it interesting that the man wasn't in the scene? There's the woman. And how does Jesus respond to that situation? Because how he responds is how he responds to any that come to him. No matter the shame, no matter the past, no matter the guilt, no matter the sin, how does he respond? Peter read it earlier. He said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And what happens? Starting with the oldest, going to the youngest, people drop their stones, and they left. And Jesus looks at this woman, exposed at his feet, in shame. And he says, woman, 
who is left to condemn you? She says, no one, Lord. And she didn't quite get it right because there was one that could judge her. Right, Jesus' statement, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. There was one without sin in that crowd who had the right to judge and one day will come and judge the living and the dead. Jesus had the right to throw the stone. What does he do in that moment? He drops his stone of judgment and offers this woman forgiveness, full and free. Neither do I condemn you. And this last sentence is so important. Now go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't give us just a license to do what we want to do. He shows us radical grace and forgiveness so that our lives are transformed in a way that we begin to long to be holy as God is holy and reflecting him. Friends, as Jesus interacted with that woman, so he interacts with anybody that comes to him, no matter what your story is, no matter what the enemy may whisper, no matter what you may have heard from Christians in the past, come to Jesus today just as you are. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to be impressive to him. Just come to him. Ask for forgiveness and give him your life. And friends, he will show you grace you could not dream possible. Let's pray.